Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to a reload of the What's Next podcast. This is one of my favorite episodes, and I always like to bring those ones back that had a huge impact, not only on myself, but I got a lot of feedback from listeners just like you. I hope you enjoy this week's reload of the What's Next podcast. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the absolute pleasure in welcoming Maria Konnikova today. She was born in Moscow, moved to the U.S. when she was four. She graduated magna cum laude from Harvard, earned her doctorate in psychology from Columbia, and has written two New York Times bestsellers, The Confidence Game and Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. Her third book, The Biggest Bluff, should be out in 2019, will be about trying to learn how to play high stakes poker. While she had zero poker experience before her trip to Las Vegas in the fall of 2016, that isn't the case today. After winning her first tournament at Planet Hollywood, she used the winnings to buy into high stakes daily tournaments at Aria. Her first major event cash was in April 2017 at the Monte Carlo Casino in Monaco. And now Maria is now a poker champion, having won the PCA National Championship and a second place finish at the Asia Pacific Tour Macau event. Welcome to the podcast, Maria. Thank you so much for having me, Tiffany. I love that it was, like, Aria, I just love that hotel. And then it's, the Monte- my favorite. Yeah, I just, I love everything about it. And then the uh, Monte Carlo Casino in Monaco, I remember the first time I ever went there, I was like 13 and I was like, this is so cool. <laughs> I really, really loved it. But welcome to the podcast. And, and I just can't wait to dig into everything about what you've been up to over the last couple of years. But before we do that, um, I like to do something called bullish and bearish, which is an opportunity just for me to get the guests a little loosened up. Bullish if you're really for something, bearish if you're not, and then the freedom to fall in between, of course. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. The first one, bullish or bearish? Virtual reality casinos will take over some of the business from regular casinos. Uh, I don't know about that. I, I have to say, if I had to pick one, I'm bearish, but I'm kind of, I, I have to say I'm mixed because um, I do think there's something about live uh, live poker. I don't actually gamble. Um, so I don't play any other casino games, but there's something about live poker and there's something about the energy I think for gamblers of a casino that can't really be replaced when you're by yourself and not in that environment. Um, that said, I'm also someone who doesn't play much online and don't actually participate in a lot of online games. And so I'm guessing that if you had someone here who did, you know, a lot of virtual reality games, someone who was into esports, they would say the opposite. And because of the rise of esports, I think that my the business side of my mind says I should be bullish, but the other side of me says I'd like to be bearish. I'm with you. I think the people side of playing poker is part of the fun, <laughs> but that's just me. And I don't exactly. Think, I don't exactly. Think, so probably I'm with you in that camp. All right. The next one, bullish or bearish. And this was, this was from a Twitter feed uh, that you had. So bullish or bearish, bearish on a cashless society. Um, definitely incredibly, incredibly bearish. I think it is a terrible idea. I think that people 
underestimate all of the security risks, all of the privacy risks, everything it will do to displace already marginalized people. I just think it's absolutely terrifying. Um, and I, you know, I, I really hope it reverses. I don't see that happening. But, um, you know, this was something that's been terrifying to a lot of people for a lot of time. Um, and he, I think most people these days are fam uh, familiar with The Handmaid's Tale, Margaret Atwood. Um, I actually haven't watched the show, but I remember reading the book for the first time a number of years ago and saying, oh, wow, that's how you take over society. And one of the reasons that her dystopian scenario was able to happen was because it was a cashless society. And so what ended up happening was um, you could just freeze people's accounts and freeze people's money um, of everyone who you didn't want to advance in society and that way stop their means of escape and stop their means of existence. And the fact that that is becoming more and more possible in reality, I think is absolutely frightening. So there's no, there's no in between here. I'm as bearish as they come. Yeah. Boy, passionate about that one. <laughs> Take note. <laughs> All right. The third one, bullish or bearish game theory should be taught in school and sort of before college, right? Because so, you know, it's just mm -hmm. taught sort of in the more formative years. Absolutely bullish. I think that um, as I've learned game theory, so I'm someone who is very late to game theory. Um, I don't have an economics background. I don't have a mathematics background. I mean, I'm a humanities person. Um, in school, in high school, all of my electives were creative writing and French literature and, you know, those types of things. And my senior year, I didn't even take a science. So I'm very much in that direction. But having learned it, I think that it is such a crucial way of thinking. And I'll even go a step further. Um, I think that poker should be taught um, in elementary school because it's a way of applying game theory. And I think that it will make it much more um, palatable and much easier for um, children to learn. And I actually think that for real life, there's nothing quite like it um, in terms of preparing you to think strategically and to realize how other people are thinking, what they're thinking about. Um, it's just incredibly important decision-making skills that can make your life much better. Well, I wonder if the, you know, the parents would be that we don't want our children to be taught poker because that has all kinds of, you know, yeah, Negative that's honesty, right. So maybe we go with absolutely. game theory applied to go fish. Well, you know, what? I, <laughs> um, one of the one of my um, one of the reasons that I'm writing this book um, is to dispel that conception, because traditionally you're absolutely right. Um, poker has been viewed as gambling um, and as this horrible vice. And to be perfectly honest, that's how I thought of it before I knew what it was and up until a few years ago in my mind, because that's always how it's portrayed in culture and that's, it's played in casinos. And chess is kind of the nice game, the good game. But honestly, poker is such a better game for learning about life and actually learning good decision-making skills. Um, and one of the reasons, one of the things I hope to accomplish with my book is to dispel that and to show people that actually know poker is not gambling and poker is a really powerful tool that will make your kids much better. Honestly, it's one of the reasons. So now um, one of the other things that's happened in the last few months is I've become um, a sponsored player for poker stars. So one of the reasons that I accepted to join team pro is to kind of have an ambassador position where I can um, spread the message of poker um, further than I'd otherwise be able to do. Um, and I think that it's very important to kind of cure people of that 
quite frankly, puritanical um, approach to games like that. Um, I don't know if it's going to happen, but I'm definitely going to do my best. And I hope that having someone like me, you know, with a PhD, with a very different background, you know, writer for the New Yorker, someone who's never gambled a second in my life, um, hopefully that will help change the image a little. But honestly, I don't know. I think it's an uphill battle, but one that I'm definitely willing to fight. Well, so, and I think that that's what's so fascinating. You know, I've I've had some amazing thinkers on the show and, you know, you included, but what what really attracted me to having you was this wonderful balance between strong academia, which I want to dig into, and then this whole, not shift, right, but uh, (laughs) uncovering, I guess, of your newfound love around kind of game theory that led you to led you to poker uh, or vice versa. So maybe you can start with, uh, I guess, you know, the story is, you know, when you finish the confidence game, um, one of your previous books, you know, you sort of found yourself at this crossroads. So maybe you can step our listeners through kind of what what happened at that point and then what led you to this this new journey you're on. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm not going to get into too much detail about some of the personal stuff, because that's actually that's a lot of the book is kind of the personal journey. Um, But, you know, I just had had a lot of things go wrong um, after the confidence came came out. And don't get me wrong. I mean, the confidence game launch was wonderful. It hit the New York Times bestseller list. I'm not complaining about that. But then afterwards, um, a lot of things just personally in my life didn't go well. Um, and I started thinking a lot about the nature of luck and how what role it plays in our lives and how much of our lives we're actually able to control um, and decided that I really wanted to write about this, um, but needed a way into the topic because it's, it's such a broad topic and you can't just say, oh, I'm going to write a book about the nature of luck because that's just, that's asking for trouble. That's, there's no narrative. There's no nothing. Um, So I just started reading a lot, which is what I always do when I'm embarking on a new project. It's always my first step is just to immerse myself in different literature. Um, And one of the things I happened to read, because when one of my more mathematically minded friends um, heard that I was thinking about chance and skill and all of these things, said, you should look into game theory, John von Neumann, very cool dude who created it. I was like, oh, yeah, I know who he is. Um, Let me read his book. Um, So I started reading Theory of Games. Um, and realized that game theory was actually born from poker. So von Neumann, who's, I think, one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century, um, just completely revolutionized society. The computer wouldn't exist without him. Um, He thought that if you could solve poker, you could solve some of the most complex human decisions um, in the world. And so he decided he created game theory as a way to solve poker. And Poker is still not solved. He wasn't actually able to do it. It's such a complicated game. But he created this framework, um, this game theoretical framework. And when I read that, I thought, oh, my God, this is amazing. Um, I need to learn more about this game. This seems like it could actually be a weight into the topic for me. Um, And so I started reading about poker and I decided, let's try this. This could actually be a narrative that could force me to have kind of a streamlined story a way of telling, a way of telling um, the, the story that can also incorporate all of the other kind of more psychological, philosophical, existential issues I want to deal with, but in a narratively interesting way. Um, and I didn't know if it was going to work, but here we are. And I think, you know, this is one of those rare instances where you embark on a new book project and you realize 
that the metaphor that you chose is even better than you right. thought it would be. The possibilities are even wider. Um, so I've been incredibly lucky, there's the word luck, that I happen to stumble into something that's just a goldmine in terms of the nuance that it can lend into an exploration of the questions I'm interested in. Well, I would tell you that uh, I I often say this and it's not mine. The first time I heard it and people who listen to this podcast will hear me mention this quite a bit. And I I really should dig into where the source was, but I heard it from Oprah, but (laughs) I think she heard it from somebody. So I I have to find where she heard it. Right. But luck being uh, opportunity and preparedness meeting. Um, So I, don't think that that's okay. completely correct, no, no, to be perfectly ahead. honest, because I think that a lot of people say that, you know, luck is preparation mm-hmm. plus opportunity, right? It's actually, I don't, I don't know if you're going to find the source of that quote, because it's something that appears <laughs> over, over and over and over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's one of these truisms, but I don't actually think that that's luck. So the way that I look at luck, I'm just actually, luck is just chance. It's the noise in the environment. It's just random variance in your life. It has, sure, to take advantage of chance, you have to be um, prepared for sure. You can't, you know, you have to have have gotten to that point and you do need preparation and you need to be in the place where that chance happens. But luck is something else. It's that third thing. It has nothing to do with how prepared you are. Really, it just exists. If you're prepared, you're more able to take advantage of it when it comes. But let's look at the flip side of that. So, like, if someone's hit by lightning, that's also <laughs> yeah. luck. That's bad luck. Yeah, I would call right? it bad luck. Um, what the hell? I mean, does unless you live and, and get superpowers, then I'd say that was good luck. <laughs> right, right. But you know, what in the world does preparation and opportunity have to do with it? Zero, and it's the exact same thing, right? If you're walking down the street and you get, you know, a brick falls on your head that and you die <laughs> that that is luck that was just you were in the wrong place at the wrong time i don't care how smart you are i don't care what opportunities you have that's the exact same thing as you launching a business that succeeds because you happen to launch it at the exact same time that people decide they want this product um and you know that if you if something had happened that was positive, people are like, oh, preparation and opportunity. But I think the way that you isolate what luck actually is is by looking at the negative side because no one would ever I mean it's it's insane to say, oh well, that was preparation and opportunity. And you're describing the identical. Yeah, and, and so I wanna which I I think that that's a great clarification. I think the bad luck side of it is what throws that off <laughs> because uh you clearly couldn't prepare for lightning. I mean, right. And honestly, on even the good luck side, like if someone wins the lottery, right? Sure, they bought the ticket. You can't win the lottery without buying the ticket. But that has nothing to do with who they are or what they are. That's also luck. That's that's and that's going to happen. You know, that's just chance. Absolute. Just it's a statistical question. It's not a it's not a personal question. What I always like to say to people: statistics doesn't care about individuals. You care about individuals. Statistics doesn't well, care. Well, you know what's what I also really found fascinating when I was doing some sort of you know background on you was that you made a comment uh, about getting into poker and being an outsider. And mm-hmm. I get asked this question a lot, right? Like, ah, Tiffany, we're really struggling on changing the business. You know, where you know our culture is set. Uh, you know, innovation yeah. is happening much faster. Disruption is happening much faster. Like, oh, I just can't get out of it. You know, and 
And so then some, some people will say, well, you need to bring in new talent, quote unquote, right? So maybe a CEO from the outside right. to bring this new perspective and you know, not have this mindset. Right. And I'd love for you to share how you have felt being a, you know, I'm using your terms, right? Kind of the outsider um, has actually given you mm-hmm. <laughs> this great perspective uh, and at almost an advantage on the luck side, right? If we're going back to what we were just talking about. So, um, right. Right. Well, I actually think there's there's a lot to that. Um, I think it's easy to overestimate um, if you, if you're you know if you're someone who says, oh, we can only use outsiders. It's, it's right. easy to go in the other direction. But I do agree with you um, that it's often incredibly useful to bring out a different perspective. And if you look at people who've kind of, if you look outside of poker, if you look at you know people in all sorts of different areas. Oftentimes, the people who end up being the true innovators or the ones whose names we remember didn't have a linear career path. They're not the ones who work their way up. Sometimes they are. Obviously, like I said, there are exceptions and it's easy to go into the totally opposite direction. But oftentimes, there are people who just came from a totally different area. I'm not even talking about a different company because they were able to look at different issues. They were able to see things in different ways because their mind wasn't used to thinking in one specific way. And I think that's where the true advantage comes because your mind becomes more flexible because you're not, you're not um, hemmed in by the conventions. You don't know how you're quote unquote supposed to think and act in certain situations. You don't know what the established wisdom is. And that's what's really helped me in poker um, is not having any preconceptions and being free to use my knowledge from totally different areas, from being a writer, from studying psychology, because no one, there's no one on my shoulder saying, this is how you're supposed to play this hand. But because I'm studying it and I'm learning it, I'm now seeing what the supposed to actually translates to. But because I haven't ever felt the pressure to play that way, I can observe it from the outside and then play the way that I kind of feel I should be playing and not the way that I feel like I need to play um, because of certain you know, expectations, for instance. Um, so I think that it can be incredibly valuable. And also, honestly, having having just broad life experience, I think, is good for any career. You know, I often say, like, if you're considering taking a gap year between high school and college or between college and going to work and you can actually afford it, this is a luxury that I could never afford. And I, I think a lot of people can't. But if you can afford it, if you're even considering it, do it. You know, get life experience. Try to do things before you settle into a path. And also don't be afraid if it doesn't feel right to change. I have changed directions so many times. And a lot of times people have thought I was totally crazy for doing it because it seems like I'm giving up a lot of stability, a lot of things that are expected of me, but also a lot of just positive to speak in game theory uh, language positive expected value because you know you know what your career path is you know exactly how much you'll be earning etc cetera, etc cetera. why would you give that up for a complete unknown but every time I've made a choice like that um, I think I've done it for the right reasons and it's always um, at least until now knock on wood worked out because I think it's good not to feel like you have to make life choices based on expectations are based on already being on a certain path and thinking, oh, well, it's too late. I already made this decision. A lot of people don't realize that basically any decision, as long as you're still alive, 
any decision can be undone and you can do something else and you're allowed to do that. It's not like you're breaking some sort of rules. They're just Yeah, and I did the same rules. thing. In my 30s, I changed jobs every 18 months and, and my sort of, you know, friends would be like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? You know, you're giving up all this, you know, tenure and established. And, and you know what, really, quite, quite honestly, yeah. uh, I didn't know why, I would, you know, I didn't know what the end game was. And, and, it, and it, it was definitely not linear. I was not going up, right. up, up. If sometimes it was sideways, sometimes it was backwards. Um, yep. But I started yep. saying this now only in retrospect that I, I didn't realize that I was just absolutely trusting the process. Um, wherever that was going to take me. And then in mm -hmm. my 40s, had I not done everything in my 30s, I wouldn't have actually been as valuable, quote unquote, as an employee to hire had I not had all those mm -hmm. experiences that everyone mm -hmm. thought I was making a mistake on, you know, and then and, and then landing in, yeah. uh, you know, at a company uh, where I had to be a lot more academic, which I am not. And and I and like writing and, and all the things I was really uncomfortable with that totally mm -hmm. stretched me into a new area. But I, I think if I had had the plan, uh -huh. like, okay, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that. And then, then it's just disappointing, right. <laughs> most likely, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, I completely agree with you. I think that it's crucial to not necessarily think, you know, okay, this is the plan. Because as soon as you start thinking about that, right away, you also have expectations and you also have like a path, like I must do this and then that in order to reach point C. I don't think you should just go crazy and start doing random things just to mix things up. There should be a reason you're doing it, but it doesn't have to have any sort of grand, I'm trying to get to point Y. Um, one of the things that you learn in psychology is that um, no matter what you do or what you think, you are so bad at predicting what point Y even looks like because the us of today has no idea what the us of even a year from now, let alone 10 years from now is going to be like, and is going to want. And so we're making decisions for, you know, for the you that you are right now and not for the you that you will be in 10 years. And you don't realize that you're like, Oh no, no, I know what I'm going to want in 10 years, but the truth is you don't. And so I think that having that flexibility, that mental flexibility, and actually, so this is one of the wonderful things about poker. And one of the things that I'm really trying to explore in the book. And I think one of the reasons that I've found that I'm actually, you know, that I have some sort of talent in poker that I had no idea that I had is I've always been very comfortable with uncertainty. And that's something that the human mind often struggles with because I've, I've studied so much about how much we struggle with it. I think I've been very open to it because you have to realize that life is all about uncertainty. And so freeing yourself up to that, realizing that you can't predict the future, that you can only make the best decision that you possibly can in the present and then happen what may, you know, just be happy that you made the right decision right now, even if, you know, you can't predict its consequences many, many months, many years down the line. I think it's always a mistake to make a decision now, not because it's the right decision right now, but because you think it's going to be the right decision for something that you want in 10 years. Um, I think that's, that's a fault that a lot of people, and I, I'm guilty of doing that sometimes too. And I think that's something that we have to try to avoid. Yeah. And I, and I tweeted something maybe, I don't know, it had to be six or seven months ago now. And then I posted it, I posted it on LinkedIn and mm -hmm. I said, you know, in my twenties, I, you know, it was, I, it, obviously it was in a tweet, so it was fairly short. It was like, it, you know, my twenties, it was like my career path, right? In my twenties, uh, what do I want to do? In my thirties, mm -hmm. it was how much money can I make? In my forties, it's like, really, is this, <laughs> what it's all about. And then in my, then in my 50s, it, it, now it has been, uh, 
you know, I want to try and give back. What was right. interesting about that is, uh, you know, Adam Grant has one as well that sort of talks about this whole sort of personal path, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think, and I got tons of feedback. I mean, it was probably one of my most active, crazy enough, like tweets and LinkedIn posts where the millennial generation is almost doing it in the flip. You know, they're trying to give back sooner and then, you know, you know unless a family starts younger or, you know, and so it's not quite as consistent where mm-hmm. generationally everybody, like everything you just said and what I just shared, where generationally, you know, millennials were getting a lot of flack for changing jobs all the time. Yeah. Where in, sure. in my generation, people are like, oh my God, you know, and now it's just kind of expected. <laughs> so right. you, you see these differences, but, you know, I, I want to, I want to get a little deeper into the psychology side mm-hmm. of, of what you've done as well, because I think the things you're pointing out now, if you, if you were to take, uh, you know, what, what you've learned from game theory, poker, mm-hmm. the experience mm-hmm. with psychology, right? And obviously your your degrees and, you know, everything from an education standpoint. And you were to turn back in and you were standing in front of a, you know, a group of, of uh, business leaders that were saying, God, you know, this is getting crazy. Growth is getting <laughs> harder. Our customers are more demanding. You know, these new competitors are popping up everywhere. Like, you know, we just don't even know where to begin. Yeah. What would you say to them? <laughs> you know, I would, um, I think part of what we've been talking about, about being willing to just make good decisions right now and being willing to change, I think is crucial. So here's one of the things I learned actually in my previous book, I wrote about um, this bias in the confidence game, but it's something that I'm learning even more now, but it's one of the reasons why cons succeed. And that's because people have tendency to not want to change once they've already invested significant resources into something, whether those resources are financial, whether they're beliefs, um, whether they're emotional, it doesn't really matter. If you've already invested a lot, it is really difficult to change your mind or to get you to change your strategy. Um, So the sunk cost fallacy is one term for it, but the sunk cost fallacy, um, I don't think even goes broad enough. But that's a good psychological way of thinking about it. You've already sunk costs into it um, that could be, like I said, they don't actually have to be physical costs, but they often are. And then you can't you can't actually deviate from that. So a lot of these businesses that come to you and say, you know what, um, I want this advice. All this stuff is changing. When you give them the advice you should be giving them, which is often, you know, you need to scrap this multi-billion dollar infrastructure because, or multi-million dollar, depends on the size of the business we're talking about, and start fresh and actually do this and say, you know what, what we've been doing, what's been working for the last 10 years, 20 years, however long, is no longer working. We need to start from point zero. And here are the things. Let's imagine you're starting the business in this environment. What are you going to think about? What are you going to do? How would you structure it? They would balk at that. They say, oh, haha, very funny. Right. We're never going to take that advice right. because you can't, you can't ask someone to tear down completely. They want to make incremental changes instead. They want to say, oh, well, maybe we should do X, not Y. So one of my favorite studies that I wrote about um, in the confidence game was um, from Harvard Business School, I want to say. It might have been Stanford Business School. Anyway, it was from a very good business school, um, from business school students. And um, so the professor gave them this sort of business dilemma. And it was about building airplanes and how much you could expect from different, I'm going to forget the specifics. So I'm not going to tell you kind of what the exact, what the exact problem was, but the basic idea was you can, you can 
choose different sorts of airplanes and airlines that have different sorts of payoffs, they have different fuel efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. How are you going to allocate your money? And so they made that decision. They kind of allocated funds towards, towards the different choices. And then um, they say, okay, now it's five years later. The business landscape has changed completely. Here are your new considerations. And there's a very clear answer that you're actually supposed to, that the airlines, the airplanes that were good before are now bad, and you actually have to really change your strategy. Um, what ends up happening is that they all keep the same strategy. Um, and it's the same. There was another study done with these business school students. Yeah, no, you have. And I just, when I saw this, I was like, oh my God. There was another study that was saying, you know, you've been working on this new technology for X amount of time, you've invested Y amount of resources, and you've just found out that a competitor is actually about to come out to market with a better version of your product. What are you going to do? The correct answer is scrap it, um, you know, take my sunk costs and realize that I need to do something else. No one does that. Everyone says, well, we're going to wait the two years and maybe, you know, maybe they'll fail. Maybe their product isn't actually better. Maybe ours will somehow still be okay. Um, where the entire premise of the product was they had to be first and it had to be best. Uh, so, so that happens over and over and over. And people, when you, when you say things like this, like when you and I are talking, they'll be like, oh yeah, I totally see that. I would never do that myself. Then when it's their oh, yeah. money, their company, yep. their business, their reputation on the line, of course they're going to do it themselves. And it's frustrating. Um, and yet it's just, it's human, right? Can you actually fault nope. them for it a lot of the no. time? And I, you know, I always tell people, look, change is hard. And I think, you know, yeah. and, I, and I use myself because that's always a great example. It's like, you know, Janu by January 10th, I'm over my New Year's resolution. <laughs> like, <laughs> Oh my God. So I, yeah, no, I'm someone who exercises regularly. Um, I do yoga every day, but I also will go to the gym to kind of, to do other things to supplement the yoga. And it's hilarious. Like clockwork, the week after New Year's is you can't get a machine. <laughs> Everything is packed. Yep. Everyone is there with their New Year's yep. resolutions. Two weeks Done. later, empty. Crickets. 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 Yeah. And, and so what you should do is just take two weeks off that those two weeks when everybody's, you know, trying to get back exactly, into it. Exactly. Exactly. When everyone's in the middle of their New Year's resolutions is when I should be taking my break. <laughs> and, and, and I say, look, individually change is hard. So imagine being a leader, yeah. whether you have one person, three people, 300, 3,000, 30,000 people in your company, if you're a CEO of a multinational brand and getting everybody to change. Um, in some way, absolutely slightly, right. So, from a yeah. psychology standpoint, you know what I also find very fascinating about poker, and, and I don't play competitively, although it, you know it is my game of it is my game of choice. Um, when I when I Excellent. go to to Vegas and and I set little goals for myself, like okay, if I can earn this much money, as soon as I have that much, I'm going to go mm -hmm. buy whatever it is I want to buy because I won't spend my own money. Uh -huh. Now I don't count the fact that sure. I've lost a lot to get the money instead of just going and buying it because <laughs> that, that's not fun. Like you just got to count the winnings and forget the losing, right? Okay, so I'm never positive. Mental accounting, mental it's accounting so great, is right? such a like it's totally justification. You know, you could have just walked over and gotten it for half the price had you just spent the original amount. Anyway, I digress. But um, is I'm not playing competitively, but I do pay a little bit of attention because you know you're not talking while you're playing for the most part. Mm -hmm. I mean, some people are really yep. serious about playing, even if they're not playing competitively, where they're not very chitter chattery, right? And then you get some tables where they're too yep. chattery, but. You know, uh, yep. is the nonverbal cues uh, around this sort of communication style as well, right? Because you're, you almost have to communicate, and I'm not specifically talking about in poker because you're trying not to communicate at all, but using those skills 
um, you know, around influencing with the body language, right? And just the way in mm -hmm. which you present yourself and all the things that come with with come yeah. with that. And I think that that's part of the psychology of it all as well when you're trying to lead companies to change. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, there's actually a lot of work that's been done um, that shows that um, nonverbal communication skills are actually oftentimes more persuasive and more powerful at communicating than verbal ones, than actual words. So there's some work that's been done um, on, for instance, you take stage actors um, and you take a play that's been uh, recorded and you make the audit the audio content basically unintelligible. Um, and then you play the video for people and then you have other people actually watch it like a normal play. And then you look at what they've taken away and what they're able to, what they're able to kind of see. And you actually see that the ones who've watched the garbled content are better able to pick up on a lot of intention. They know exactly what's going on. Oftentimes they have better interpretations of the drama because they can actually see, you know, what the author right. quote unquote intended because they're reading all of that context. And we don't, I don't think we realize just how much we're always communicating, even when we're not communicating and how much other people are communicating. And I think the people who end up being the best leaders, the best negotiators, um, who end up getting kind of ahead in a lot of situations where you want to say, oh my God, he just got so lucky. Well, no, he actually is much, or she is much better able um, to pick up on those nonverbal cues and to control your own nonverbal cues so that you're able to persuade big groups of people. Because even though it's difficult and organizational change is so incredibly difficult, we do have some counterexamples in history of big companies making big changes, radical changes, when people have thought that they were going to go under completely. So it is possible. But I think it does take, in that particular case, it's not a specific organization. I think in that case, it's that the organization got very lucky to have a leader who is insanely talented, who has those skills, and frankly, who has the charisma um, to be able to make it happen. Um, in those cases, you see businesses that you thought were going to go bankrupt just make huge comebacks um, and end up doing incredible. And I well. think you know the ones that that I've taken a look at. It, yes, it is a charismatic leader, right? That has to kind of set the vision, but it happens from the bottom up, right? I mean, if everybody isn't sort of organized around the cause and the fight and, you know, all the things that they want to have done. You just have no shot at turning that around. Mm -hmm. And and I think that that today that is more true than ever, because I think people and companies, small businesses, especially, you know, it's just getting much more difficult and, you know, learning yeah. how to uh, be a leader who can drive change, who can send the right verbal and yeah. nonverbal cues, who can, create a culture mm -hmm. and an environment that, that welcomes failure because then that's the way to success. Yep. You know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's just not taught in school going back to, you know, teaching game theory, you know, no, whether it's poker not. or go fish, which yep. I, that's debatable. I gotta say, yeah, go fish might be the way, but you know, like, <laughs> maybe go fish and okay, let's go with that. Move up you to know, the like, you know, but you know, I, I think this goes to it, you know, Roger, <laughs> I, I had Roger Martin on yes, uh, a couple absolutely. of times ago and, and he was the Dean at, um, you know, a, a well-known uh, Canadian MBA school. And I, we had this whole conversation around like the future of education to match the future of work. 
right? That education is still sort of educating to mm-hmm. the 20th century business and, and speed of business and sort of the kinds of technologies we had at our disposal. And now we're in the 21st century and you have these little smaller schools that are mm-hmm. trying to really push the envelope by using all those things. But the broad-based masses, right, are getting yep. the same education. You know, they're learning history, they're learning, you know, whatever they're learning, not a whole lot of music, not a whole lot of art, not, you know, limited science, technology, and engineering depends where you are in the country, right? Uh, or in the world. Um, and, and, you know, these kinds of much more softer skills. (laughs) And so, you know, maybe we can wrap this up because you have had a fantastic educational, you know, uh, foundation, right. Through your, through your education and your degrees, you've written books. So you've studied a lot of stuff. Now the poker, I think, which I still have to say is just the most fascinating part of this whole thing. Cause I think it threads it all together. And so what do you think education, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, for those listening who have kids in, in school or could get them into new classes or go take mm-hmm. a class themselves, what, what would you say would be the best thing to do? Well, um, as I said earlier, you know, I, I do feel strongly that everyone should learn poker, but really learn it, not like, you know, just play and be like, oh, hey, you know, this is a cool game. Like, let me just bluff all the time or let me do this, like actually study it and actually figure out what's going on so that you have someone, someone good teaching you who teaches you decision theory, who teaches you all of the things that's going on, because you're not just going to be learning, you know, how to logically how game theory works and how to make decisions. You're also going to be learning emotion management, self-control, self-regulation, creativity. You're going to be learning a lot of these things. But poker aside, um, I think that we need to go back in history a little bit and go back in time where people weren't oriented towards, oh, I need to learn practical skills. I think everyone just needs to learn, um, have a broad humanities background. I think you need to read fiction. You need to read poetry. You need to have you need to get curious about the world, period. And the world isn't just, you know, computer programming or the sciences or, you know, physics, something that has obvious practical value. The world is so much broader and the best thinkers are ones who are able to be curious about it more broadly. And so I would just encourage encourage parents to encourage their children um, to take those kinds of classes and not to think, oh my God, what am I going to be able to do with a comparative literature degree? Instead, think, oh my God, look at all the things I'm going to learn from a comparative literature degree. I mean, I studied fiction as an undergrad. I studied creative writing. It's not like I was studying and I come from a family with no money whatsoever. So it's not like I could fall back on anything. I knew I'd have to make my own way in the world. Um, But I think that the best thinkers just say, you know what, I'm going to I want a broad introduction to the world because they're people who are curious about everything. So anything that gets your children curious, anything that keeps their worldview and their views in general broad, I think that's the key. Well, this has been so awesome, Maria. I hope you had as much fun as I did. I, I could just keep talking about you know all of this because I think it's, <laughs> it's such a unique perspective. And you know, I I'm sitting here going, hmm, how can I just go play poker full time? <laughs> Which is probably not a good idea for me right now, but it's a good goal to have. <laughs> like, it's a great goal to have, so honestly. Because I, think I am on the negative side of poker, right? So then I can't afford to do it. <laughs> it, has to be, it has to be a hobby for me unless I get really serious about it. But it has been a pleasure having you today. So uh, we really all look forward to your next book coming out, The Biggest Bluff. Any idea when that's going to be uh, published? 
Um, we don't have a date yet. Um, we're hoping for around the fall of 2019. Excellent. Well, if you know anybody is in the neighborhood and, and sees that Maria's playing in a tournament, please go by and support her. And uh, it has just been a pleasure having you. So thank you so much, Maria, for being with us today on the What's Next podcast. Thank you. This was an absolute pleasure. A lot of fun. A really interesting conversation. Well, that was an awesome conversation. I don't know if you noticed, but it was a little longer than normal, but I could have just kept going. I was so fascinated by the combination of the psychology degree and her undergrad at Harvard, and then sort of now poker, like how you pull all that together with these fascinating insights in order to be better leaders and better business change agents and inspiring those to, to do things differently. I think the whole thing of her being an outsider and not coming with this established set of wisdom may actually be a key to unlocking this unmet potential and unrealized potential within your own companies and as well within your own careers. You know, if we can all do things that make us a little uncomfortable, all the better. And learning is a lifelong journey. What you think you may be doing today may not be what you're doing 12 months from now, five years from now, or 10 years from now. You just have to give yourself permission to try things that you're interested in and always continue to be a student of whatever it is you're doing in this lifetime. So with that, thank you so much for joining me today on the What's Next podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to share with your friends. And if you wouldn't mind, leave a review and tell me what you think about it. Appreciate you listening today. Look forward to having you join me again soon. 